Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and I'm lucky to have a leading quant expert on the show today. Dr. Joe Simonian is a globally renowned investor and researcher who has conducted extensive research in quantitative finance, machine learning, factor investing, and portfolio construction. He's currently senior investment strategist at Scientific Beta, and over his career has held senior roles at Acadian Asset Management, Atixis, Fidelity, JP Morgan, PIMCO, and Lehman. On the academic research side, he's also the co-editor of the Journal of Financial Data Science and serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Portfolio Management. Most recently, Joe published a book with Frank Fabozzi, another bright mind in investing research and frequent guest and author with CFA Institute, about applying quant methods to fixed income investing, something I look forward to digging into with him today. I suspect our conversation will actually cover lots of ground as I hope to ask him about emerging markets, AI, alternative data, and more. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Joe, let, let's start with your book, which was just released this month, Quantitative Global Bond Portfolio Management. I imagine many listeners are familiar with the application of quant methods to managing equity portfolios, but what does this look like in fixed income? Well, Mike, the book really offers a comprehensive discussion of all the major topics in global bond management from the standpoint of quantitative investing. So we discuss all the classic subject matter, as well as more cutting-edge techniques from financial data science. I think the uh, unique aspects of the book include one of the most in-depth discussions on currency management at least a decade, as well as a deep discussion on interregional yield curve management. So, uh, you know, I think it's a perfect holiday gift for anybody who's interested in fixed income and bond investing. And it really seeks to fill a gap, I think, that we have seen in global bond portfolio management in some time. I know you cover FX, political risk, default risk, sort of the challenges in that. Investing across the globe with a global bond portfolio are sort of three to four times domestic, I think you've said. So can you give me an example of sort of how these strategies are being applied or how, how you'd use the work that you've done in that to manage that risk? Sure. In the book, we go through some concrete examples, practical examples from all of the author's portfolio management experience. And you know, a good example, a concrete example would be where you have a duration target in a portfolio. But as opposed to a domestic portfolio, you actually have you know, a multitude of yield curves to choose from to match those duration, that duration target that you may have. But the problem is, is that when you're dealing with yield curves from different countries, you've got different political risks, you have different currency risks, of course, and you also have uh, the, so the different dynamics, interest rate dynamics that also go hand in hand with every country or region. And so what we really do for the reader is walk them through you know, many practical trade examples of how you can actually achieve these goals and also you know, accounting for all the risks present in any decision that you make in a global portfolio. So I think, you know, I think the, the, the epiphany, if you will, that many readers will have, uh, especially students, is that global bond portfolio management is, is quite a bit more challenging uh, than you know, what they have been accustomed to in sort of introductions on fixed income, where you're really dealing with one currency, one country, et cetera. Uh, the other thing that I think a lot of folks will find surprising is that many of the optimization techniques or portfolio construction techniques that we use in the equity space have to really be modified for the fixed income space because there are, you know, again, a multitude of risks, and you mentioned them all, default risk, political risk, currency risk, et cetera, that really manifest in bond portfolios in ways that they do not or they do in a much more muffled fashion, if you will, uh, in equity portfolios. And so 
what you find is that a lot of the portfolio construction techniques that we've been accustomed to in equity or even a multi-asset context really have to be modified significantly to really play a constructive role in portfolio selection in bond space. Yeah. So adding those risks, it's it's not really additive. It's sort of more, it's like having one kid to two kids to three kids. It's not, not really additive. It's sort of multiplicative given the inter- interrelationships between them. It is. I mean, if you want to take that uh, the child analogy further, it's like, you know, you've got a multitude of children and the good news is that, you know, you've got potentially more than one winner, if you will. But the downside is that you actually have to take more care to make sure that they're all winners, right? Because you may have five losers at the end of the day as well, which is what you don't want. <laughs> so, so, you know, the risks are also opportunities if they are handled properly. But we love them all the same, right? Of course, of course. Let's switch over to equities for a second. I'd like to turn to some research you did recently where you looked at trends in emerging markets investing. You back-tested how some quant models might have performed in recent years. What did you find there? Well, I think if you look at the performance of many EM equity managers uh, over the last several years, especially active fundamental managers, but also quant managers as well, I think what you find is that many of their performance challenges have to do with the fact that the EM universe has changed significantly. For example, if you look at the broad EM indexes that are available, what you're going to find is that many of the staples in terms of countries and markets that we've been used to have now either been replaced or have had their positions reduced dramatically. Russia and Turkey come to mind. On the other hand, you have countries like Saudi Arabia, India, Thailand, Indonesia, who have had their weights increase significantly. And so, If you think about how an EM team is structured uh, on the fundamental side, you typically have research analysts that are specialists in a given country or a market. Now, if you had a Russia specialist and a Turkey specialist five years ago, well, their skill set is not that valuable now. And you can't create a Saudi or Indonesian specialist overnight. So what I think has happened on the fundamental side is that a lot of EM managers have been caught flat-footed. Now, with quant managers, it's a, little, it's a little bit different. It's a mixed bag. You've had some that have performed well and some that haven't. So for example, at Scientific Beta, we have an EM quant strategy. It's a factor-driven strategy, and it's, you know, it has significantly outperformed its peers and the benchmarks over the last several years. And I think there's a few reasons for this, which are sort of takeaways and lessons for EM investors overall. I think, first of all, the strategy has been more diversified uh, than uh, most of the active management or fundamental counterparts that you've seen on, on the street. And I think well, that's helped because you know the concentration risk in a few markets like China has really hurt you know the mass of EM equity strategy. Now, the second reason I think a strategy like the scientific beta strategy is outperformed is that the sole focus on a quantitative strategy such as this is the characteristics, economic characteristics and market characteristics of each security you're selecting. So there's no sort of thematic side you know, to the story. It's really taking each security in terms of its numerical attractiveness. And part and parcel of that is that risk plays a, a center role in the investment process. And so when you really focus on risk and you focus on the risk factors that deliver premia, I think you have a much clearer way of investing in markets that are more volatile and more inefficient like EM. And so I think that's sort of the story of why, on the one hand, a lot of fundamental managers have underperformed, but on the other hand, why strategies like scientific betas have outperformed. 
So you wrote up this work in a paper, but also you, you did an article for an enterprising investor for CFA Institute. And in that you talked about one of the methods that you used in applying the factors was to do so with equal weighting. So why was that? Isn't, isn't there an optimal weight for each factor as, as, you know, as some quant managers will do with equity models? Well, each asset owner or plan sponsor, if you will, is free to take, let's say, the factor sleeves, if you will, value, momentum, et cetera, and weight them as they see fit. But what I was giving as an example in that piece was really the flagship strategy that Scientific Beta has in their uh, in their EM strategy and their multi-factor strategy. And so what we do, we go through a, a fairly intricate investment process to build each individual factor strategy, but then we, we combine them all, we equal weight each sleeve. Now that is the flagship and it's also sort of, a, if you will, a base case portfolio or strategy that is delivered. But a client or you know an investor is more than, than free to develop their own weighting scheme for example, if they want to be more value tilted versus momentum tilted, that serves their plans, needs, and goals, they're more than welcome to do that. However, I will say though, that the equal weighting scheme does have empirical evidence that speaks in its favor as well. So it wasn't just sort of a, an artistic, if you will, comment or move in the, in the piece. It's that there is good reason to actually equal weight the six factors that we showcase when you're building portfolios. So I get that point you make. It's a good one about the fact that you know some of the specific skill sets of fundamental analyst team might become irrelevant as their sort of country focus is eliminated from the index. But can you talk a bit to the, the idea of data? Specifically, I think about analysts have to have some discretion and being able to parse what's true and what's not. And when you have you know some regions like China or other areas where the data isn't always as reliable, how do the quant models manage for that? I think the simple answer is really that you have to spend a lot of resources and effort into validating the data that you're getting. And if you're not doing that and you're a quant manager, then I don't think you're really really living up to the mantle of being a professional quantitative money manager. So uh, again, just to draw on scientific beta's experience a little bit, you know, considerable amount of, of effort and resource spend, if you will, goes into data acquisition, data cleaning, data validation, and so on. And it's for all the reasons that you said is because, you know, when you're running professional strategy and you put yourself there as, as, a, as a professional strategy provider or money manager, you really have to focus on, you know, the data side. And I think a lot of folks underestimate the effort that goes into that. Uh, not professionals, obviously, but, you know, you, you, know you, you can imagine the average investor, if you will, or maybe a student uh, will underestimate the actual effort that goes into uh, the data side of the story. But it's critical. So, and without that, you're really not going to get where you need to be. And I think, you know, again, one of the things that a lot of our relationships are are impressed with is that focus and attention to detail on the data. Gotcha. So a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Kunal Kapoor, CEO of Morningstar, and we talked a little bit about how AI might impact capital markets. And I'm curious of your take from the quant seat about how AI might impact the efficiency of markets and what that might mean for the outlook for active versus passive, or for the opportunities in quant versus fundamental investing. What do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, you know, you and I were talking before before today about how there, there in some quarters, there's the impression that AI and machine learning will continuously progressively increase the efficiency of markets. And my response to that is that not necessarily the case, because you know, machine learning and AI are tools, 
just like traditional statistic or econometrics and so on. And those tools have to be used by practitioners who have some understanding of how to best apply them. So while in skilled hands, they may be used effectively, you're going to find and you are finding that many folks are using them in ways that they maybe shouldn't be using. And when that happens, that creates new inefficiencies in the market because it's essentially a misapplied tool. And you know, the signals and so on that are being generated are essentially noise, but that noise is entering the market. And uh, when that happens, then the agents, the individuals who are trading in the market will be misinformed. Okay. And so I think how, what I see is, you, you know, what we have seen with any other new tool that's been introduced in investing over the last you know, 70 years, let's say, which is that in some hands, those tools will be used very effectively. Revolutionary things will be done with them. Higher quality, better built products will result. And in other instances, you will have the complete opposite, where it will actually hurt those that are using these tools, and they may have been better off just using what they doing what they've been doing previously. So I think that's how I, I view it. It's just like any other tool; you have to have skilled practitioners applying them, or else it's really a recipe for disaster. That's so interesting because you know historically we talk we look at behavioral biases as sort of this noise that's misinforming market players and creating these you know inefficiencies, but the idea here that these tools could themselves introduce through their own, you know, misapplication, creating the equivalent of bias, but sort of machine-generated bias that's going to direct people the wrong way and uh, and create those gaps in, in in knowledge. So I'd like to talk about alternative data because it seems like that's sort of the new frontier in the most effective quant models these days. So what's what alternative data is emerging that's getting you excited? Well, like many others, I'm very excited about natural language processing, and the reasons are simple. I think if you think about investing, Wall Street is almost like a bilingual or binational country because it has two languages, or always has. One is the language of numbers, and the other is the language of words, verbal, textual. And Wall Street and the investing community has done uh, spent a considerable amount of effort, obviously, developing tools to deal with the numerical side, the numerical language that we deal with. But up until recently, we have not really had the precise and sort of high quality tools to really process the verbal or uh, textual side of our, of our nation, if you will. If you remember in the old days when the Fed used to come up with a statement, uh, you'd have some strategists at a firm go through with a yellow marker and you know, find out how you know, what, the, what the chairman said, how it was different from a previous statement. Well, now, obviously, NLP can process that and do much more. So I'm very excited about our ability to really process information and not just market information, right? NLP, you know, has, it gives us also the ability to automate a lot of non-sort of trading or investment functions, like on the compliance side, right? And these are things I've worked on when I had my own consulting firm in the past as well. And these are, are creating a lot of efficiencies, you know, sort of in the back office, if you will, as well as the front office. On the NLP side, when you have to, we can automate RFPs, contracts, and so on. It's a big time saver for firms. Now, the other reason I'm excited about NLP, though, is that you know we hear a lot about different kinds of alternative data, and I don't want to besmirch any one uh, one particular or, or a type. But NLP is really the one type of all or, or natural language is the one type of alternative data that has a very robust academic and theoretical foundation. Because for decades now, we've had researchers working on 
computational linguistics and formal semantics and all these areas that inform all these algorithms that we use to process language. And I think because of that, there is a good foundation to rest on when we're developing innovations and novelties uh, to the existing algorithms and, and methods that we have. So I'm very excited about this. Um, I would say the one caveat is that you really, to do this properly, you really need to have, again, a little bit of a spend, if you will, on data acquisition. Because in order to get a good read of what the market's thinking, think about it, you've got to cull all of this verbal information from newspapers, from tweets, from et cetera, et cetera, all of these different sort of publications and, and, and media in order to get a good understanding and to process this language. It's just like any other sample of information, data sample, right? And to get a data sample of language that is really suitable for processing and use often requires a considerable amount of effort and spend. And so I think that is the one challenge I would say that's probably facing some firms, not all, of course, right? But if you can overcome that 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 resource challenge, then you know the sky's the limit, really. It's really all up to your ingenuity and creativity to create algorithms that can help you process this verbal information. Yeah, and you, and you need to have the the insight. The insight, of course. Everything is about insight and creativity. But if you have that and you have the spend, then you can marry that information to your, your numerical information. And then that really, I think, constitutes a powerful tool. So you barely have this book that we talked about earlier there, the fixed income quant book out on the shelves there, Joe. And I understand you have another one that's being finalized for next year. What, what's the next one about? Well, the title hasn't been determined yet, although I have some candidates. But what the book concerns is really trying to make more rigorous the area of investing that we call global thematic global macro. So uh, a lot of thematic global macro is uh, focused on the analysis of geopolitical events and risk. As we know, there is no shortage of writing on this topic on Wall Street, although a lot of it is not necessarily informed by high-level expertise and certainly not any kind of theoretical or formal rigor. And so what we do in this book is really apply computational game theory, machine learning, and causal inference to thematic global macro. And it's really kind of a compendium in the sense of many case studies, many types of games are analyzed that apply to geopolitical analysis, monetary policy, et cetera. And then we show you how to incorporate game theory with reinforcement learning. And really what it does, the intent of it is to give researchers in multi-asset and, and global macro space some ideas of really how to make their geopolitical and macro analysis a little bit more rigorous. And so really, I, I view the book as providing the seeds from which many flowers can grow in different uh, investment teeth. Because I think a lot of these topics have not been covered, uh, certainly with not too much depth, right? And there's reasons for that. I mean, not many people on Wall Street are experts in game theory or have a requisite knowledge. And then you know, actually thinking through how to combine game theory with machine learning is also you know, really a novelty on the street. And so I, again, I saw a gap in the way researchers were doing things in certain quarters, multi-asset and thematic global macro, and I decided to fill it. So hopefully it'll be as uh, popular as the recent book is, but look out for that coming uh, sometime next year. You're a busy guy. We'll have to have you back on next year when that one comes out. For sure. So we're, we're coming to the end of our of our conversation today, Joe, and uh, we'll hit you with the, uh, the, the, the usual two-part question here. What, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Well, my first full-time job was at Lehman Brothers on a money market desk. So I was there during the, this 2006 and I left in 2008 and you can guess why. 
And so it was, uh, you know, the, the old old joke is that the, the money market desk is a backwater, except in times of a financial crisis. And then it's the most exciting place in the world, but for all the wrong reasons, right? So that was my first full-time. Before that, I had done some internships and so on. And, you know, my advice to anybody, if I told, I'd take myself to coffee the first day would be, and I would give it to anybody today, is keep learning, right? Because you never reach the point in life or as an investor where you know everything. I think most people have something to teach you. So there's some humility that's in order. So anyone who has anything of value to impart to you, you know, open your ears, listen, don't talk so much, and uh, it'll definitely help you as you progress. You know, I had a lot of role models, you know, on the street, people who, you know, were writing a lot of research where I was and, uh, you know, they encouraged me to do it and I followed their advice and it worked out pretty well. So I think that would be my one piece of advice to myself or anybody else would be just to open your ears, don't talk so much and keep learning from everybody who has anything to offer you because I think you can only do better by doing. I've been speaking today with Dr. Joe Simonian, Senior Investment Strategist at Scientific Beta and co-author of Quantitative Global Bond Portfolio Management. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us today, Joe. Thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this is me, Guiding Assets. Guiding Assets.